0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thanks for joining us today as myself and Josh go down the literary gun barrel once more and discuss No Deals, Mr. Bond, the sixth adventure in the James Gardner Sweep. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I am joined by my reader in Bond across the pond. Hello. Hey, pal. Uh, yeah, John Gardner continues. Sixth it book does. now. We're on to the sixth book after after our roll of honor. No, correction, Nobody Lives Forever. Forever. We did that one a few weeks ago, and we're back now. But of course, on the Bond by Numbers train, we're still at the station, aren't we, in terms of our big episodes?
1: We are. How many books do we have left in this series? This is book six of Watts.
0: Oh, I think there's thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, inside it uh, it says there.
1: And one thing I'm curious too—I never really thought about it while I was reading it. When was this book released? I'm really curious now to think about it because they're talking 1987. about 1987. 87. So John Gardner's a machine with these. He must like do these at least twice or three times every a year. year. That's yeah. It's crazy. No, just
0: one once a year so far. Oh, you're once right because he
1: he started in in 1980, right?
0: Or 82. No license. Yeah, license renewed was 1982, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. So this is 87. So he must have done like two books in one year at mm-hmm. one point.
0: No, oh. everyone's just had the one year.
1: Well, I was never doing it. he been
0: sequential. He's written one book a year. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. We don't care. We're not, that's not a maths podcast.
1: No, it's definitely not. Even though it's called Bond by Numbers, but it's definitely not. <laughs>
0: We're here to talk about uh, No Deals, Mr. Bond, which is the sixth James Gardner adventure, and uh, let's let's just break right into it. If you just joining the show, um, Bond by Numbers is a celebration of all things James Bond, uh, particularly the foolish sort of what if things we like to do between our reviews or our historical deep dives. We like to play with our imaginations and bring different sort of a smorgasbord, assortment, cornucopia of Bond ideas, events, and uh, to kind of activities. But um, we we also read all the books and do all the reviews. So we're working our way through John Gardner right now after a very successful Ian Fleming series, parts of which we've shared on the show before, Josh. This is our spring break from Bond by Numbers. We haven't had a proper episode with Jeff in a while, but we'll be getting one of those up very shortly to start the the new season. Yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll tease that later on. For now, it's no deals, Mr. Bond, and you know that our literary gun barrel episodes always provide a summary of the plot, and we'll get you on the other end for our angle. Once again, thanks for joining us here on Bond by Numbers. The story begins with a cold open, a special ops recovery mission in the Baltic Sea. A Trafalgar-class Royal Navy nuclear submarine is being used by MI6 to extract agents from a covert assignment. The figure in charge, codenamed Seahawk, is, of course, James Bond. Some gunfire ensues, but the mission succeeds, Seahawk safely escorting and delivering his two female targets back into safety upon the submarine. Fast forward five years, and James Bond is enjoying his de Bry coffee in the warmth of spring. London blooms around him, and life seems good. Well, all apart from the headlines, which his housekeeper May chatters fretfully about, a second deliberate execution and mutilation of a young woman has grabbed the press's attention. Similarities exist in how both victims had their tongues removed and their bodies dumped. The buzz is citing Jack the Ripper, But Bond and M recognize the calling card as that of the KGB, sending a message to those who betray the cause by sharing or spreading state secrets. Walking through Regent's Park, M fills Bond, mouthpiece for the reader, in on the finer points of Operation Cream Cake, that mission of recovery from five years ago. Bond knew only parts of the puzzle. As they walk among the flowers, M reveals more of the picture. The mission was a honey-trap, with all the sexy, manipulative bait a government could muster in the pursuit of turning top Soviet officials into blabbering puppies. The term Emily, and the behavior of those agents planted to extract confidence from the targets, will be nothing new to those of us who can think, in even moderate shade, reflect on wartime intelligence, study the culture of counter-espionage, or, come to think of it, enjoy the successful TV series The Americans. We don't need to spend too much time hashing up the earth for explanation here. Suffice it to say that while the extraction of the agents five years ago was particularly successful, cream cake itself was not. Covers blown, the girls were reintegrated into society with new identities. And now the KGB is exacting its revenge. Two of the original five agents had recently wound up dead and tongueless, leaving only three, two women, Irma Wagen, Emily Nicholas, and a man, Franz Belsinger, also known as Jungle. They too will have targets on their backs. M's expectations of Bond here are fairly ambitious. The Foreign Office and its watchdogs gave strict orders following the crumbling of Cream Cake that personnel were to be born again, redeployed, and left alone. But M isn't happy with that, he won't just sit back and watch those who sacrifice their lives for his cause get picked off and mutilated. And so, without official help from any government agency, 007 is to run as silent and deep as he can, safeguard what's left of the defected honey, and draw in the hit team. The first of Bond's three pickups is Irma Wagen, alias Heather Dare, a hairdresser in the city at a chic Stratton Street salon. Predictably attractive and well-built, Heather accepts the spiel after some convincing and shares more of her cover with Bond, including the fact that the Emilies were interconscious of one another. She also confesses that she still harbors guilt over blowing the operation by revealing a little too much on her prime target, Colonel Maxim Smolin, who served HVA at that time as second-in-command. Plans are made to meet at the airport later, where Bond will take Heather to Dublin and use his private contacts there to access the second target, Emily Nicholas, a.k.a. Ebby Heritage, at a rendezvous point which she and Heather had made in the event of an emergency. Lacking official support, Bond is forced into planning on the fly, and part of that involves trusting Heather early on. On their way out, Bond and Heather are attacked by an assailant, presumably on the hunt to exact the latest KGB killing. Making effective use of his collapsible baton, Bond dispatches the heavy and leaves him unconscious. The man is recognized by Heather as Misha, one of the Moscow-trained heavies that she met in Berlin years ago. Bond is surprised to note a lack of tongue-removing instruments among the person of Misha, which plants a seed of suspicion in his mind. Another appears after noting that Heather's hand is remarkably cool for a woman who just escaped death. He hasn't much time to process this, though, as two more heavies chase down the hallway and force Bond and Heather out into a fire escape. A cinematic escape down the high narrow steps is paired with some shooting, aiming to maim, not kill, as his 00 license can't be relied on here. Travelling as strangers together, the two arrive in Ireland later that night to find the papers proclaiming another death. This victim hadn't been identified, but all signs point to it being Ebby Heritage, as the conditions of the brutal killing were the same, and the murder occurred at the Ashford Castle Hotel, the intended rendezvous point she and Heather had set up. Bond now discerns that Smoline, if it is him behind the killings, must have two teams in operation. Plus, he's at least one step ahead of them. Enter the story, stages left and right respectively, Inspector Norman Murray and Mick Sloan. These two are the first of Bond's unofficial official help in the novel. Bond Both owing favors to the secret agent, Bond first calls Murray of the Garda's special branch to determine if the identity of the victim was known. It turns out that Ebby is likely still alive because the victim's name was Betty Ann Mulligan. It would seem that Miss Elizabeth Lark, a name that Ebby used and Heather would expect to see, had lent poor, unsuspecting Betty Mulligan her jacket for a walk in the rain. The killers must have been using the coat to identify their victim and... Well, the tragic ending of Betty Ann writes itself. Instincts tell Bond to keep the truth of Ebby's status to himself for the moment. Instead, he plans to head for Ross Lane, which is where Heather and Ebby were meant to meet should anything with their rendezvous point have gone awry sort of a backup rendezvous. As for Big Mick Sloan, Bond contacted his old pal in request of a caravan. He wants a car and a reliable escort for the morning trip. Nick agrees, conditioning only that they don't travel into the north. He doesn't want that sort of trouble. So in the early hours of the morning, Inspector Murray sneaks into Bond's hotel room for an unofficial visit. Among other things, he discloses that it is indeed Smolin behind the attacks and some heavy finger-pointing encourages all to see Smolin, codename Basilisk, as the untrustworthy mole within a warren of rotten moles. Maxim Smolin, is in Ireland, and has worked for them all. HVA, KGB, GRU, DDR. The acronyms attached to this man's wheeling and dealing are more than a little overwhelming, and Murray issues this report to Bond. But the message is clear. Steer clean away. He's the undeniable big bad hunting down and eliminating the Emilys. The fact that Smolene worked for Smirsch also suggests that Operation Cream Cake had been blown from the start. But if this is true, then by whom and how? Along the road the next morning, Bond learns more about Heather's service, as well as the workload that Jungle, or Franz Belzinger, had in trying to woo and earn the trust of Fräulein Captain Dietrich, the HVA's plague master. Like Heather's, Jungle's target was also of enormous importance to Creamcake. We get the impression that his cover might not yet be blown, though his whereabouts are unclear. Despite their best efforts, Bond and the escort provided by Mick are identified and intercepted on the road to Ross Lane by Smolin's crew. He and Heather are brought to the GRU's Irish safe house, a castle, really, well hidden and secure, and put under the aggressive gaze of Fafi, Wotan, and Saigi, three fierce German shepherds. As things turn out, Smolin already holds Ebby prisoner in the same place, so a mild reunion ensues between she and Heather, and with Bond. You see, Ebby was one of the two targets rescued by Bond in the operation five years ago. Remember, that cold open that started the book. But it's only shown in suggested looks and very brief exposition by Gardner. Each agent is downplaying any knowledge of the other. Smolene reveals... That he knows everything about Bond's current operation, and proves as much by evidencing conversations at Blades, regurgitating figures from private chats, and shedding light on other secret details which Bond thought heavily, professionally guarded. Smoline then makeshifts an interrogation with Bond and dismisses his two guards. While alone, Smolin surprises Bond and the reader by confessing that he's actually a double agent and has been defected for over five years. He shares the details of his defection with Bond, and though hurt by being kept in the dark by M, Bond slowly comes round to seeing how the situation has evolved. So, instead of being the snake in the grass hunting for the cream cake operatives, Smolin asks Bond to trust that he's the snake working with them all. Against who? Well, shake off your red herrings, because here comes the real big bad. General Konstantin Nikolaevich Chernoff, Smolin's superior and executive figure of Smirch, Or at least, what amounts to Smirch in these mercurial, conflicted politics of John Gardner's adventures. Chernoff is on the way, arriving imminently, in fact. So when Smoling suggests a getaway, Bond isn't one to argue. Unfortunately, the KGB had made alterations to the downstairs interrogation room in the time that Smoline had been away from it, and the recording device he thought was deconfigured had actually been picking up his entire confession to James Bond. His cover blown, Smoline's associate Ingrid and the guards, with her, turn on the party. Bond gets attacked viciously by the dogs, but Smoline proves himself, neutralizing the guards. Bond bugs the telephone and, with Smoling's help, manages to squeak through the defenses upstairs with both girls and use one of the cars to escape, using also the oncoming helicopter, Chernoff's double-rotored KA-25 hormone, as a cover. Bond's ASP hits the chopper and maims its landing gear. Opting to switch vehicles near the Dublin-Wicklow road, Smoling ditches the BMW in the woods for a hidden rover, and the party of four decides to split into two. Agreed aliases in hand, Bond and Ebby head for New Park while Smolin and Heather go to the Clonmel Arms Hotel. Laying low and licking wounds, Bond formulates his plan to return to England and use one of his own safe houses to transfer the girls and Smolin to M. Unfortunately, he doesn't get the chance. A phone call to Clonmel Arms confirms that Chernov caught up with them and Bond knows he and Ebby are on borrowed time. He calls Murray and informs him of his move and the need to flee, and also checks in on the castle listening devices, which he activates. He overhears rumored chatter about Jungle and Fräulein Dietrich having fled to Hong Kong. 007 rushes to wake Ebby, but it's a useless venture, as Chernoff is already in the room and waiting for him. Prisoners once again, Bond and Ebby are separated. Bond is told not to worry about Ebby while being transported by Chernoff through the southeast. Suddenly, fortune falls at his feet. A police roadblock three miles outside of Arklow suspends Chernoff's criminal intent and the reader's disbelief. Diplomatic credentials and a not-so-hokey story about Bond being a wanted suspect are cited by the Garda officers, which prevent Chernoff from progressing any further with him. Bond is turned over to the police. Inspector Norman Murray, the first man that he sees, takes Bond away from the scene. The two exchange notes, and Murray arranges for Bond to get out of Ireland, but not before he checks one last time at the castle wiretap. The snooping confirms the earlier rumor of Hong Kong as the final target's new whereabouts. Bond calls cute and heads to Paris via a Cessna 182 provided by Murray. And, as if St. Patrick hadn't finished with miracles for James Bond, Ebby has been smuggled on board too. A surprise from Norman Murray. It seems that she wasn't ever apprehended by Smoline, but instead hid in a cleaning cupboard when she sensed the danger at the New Park Hotel, and then turned to the police when they arrived. Bond rendezvous with Cute and gets equipped in Paris, while Ebby lays low and out of sight. He arranges for flights to Hong Kong, and before long, Gardiner has us riding an aisle seat to the Mystic East as the adventure's third act begins. Shortly after their Cathay Pacific flight lands, Bond and Ebby are brought to the opulent Mandarin Hotel. There, Ebby spots the elusive Swift, her and the other Emily's handler during Cream Cake. In the light and airy room on the 21st floor, Bond wastes little time, calls Big Thumb Chang and sets up a meeting. Chang, another of Bond's unofficial contacts, has helped Bond in the past, and below radar with equipment and getting information. After greeting them in his hovel, a slum cover for his actual wealth, Chang wastes little time in talking shop about acquiring firearms. Bond finds Chang's speed in conversation suspicious, knowing how it is Chinese custom to exchange lengthy pleasantries before business. The reason is made clear fairly quick, though, when Chang is replaced behind the bead curtain by Swift, an attractive, no-nonsense European in his late 50s. Ebbie is asked to leave while Bond and Swift talk, a mild misogynist gesture that doesn't really fit sensibly in this narrative. Swift reveals to Bond a little more about the pressures of Foreign Office and what they've pressed on their shared boss M, which helps to explain and account for some of the secrecy behind keeping Bond in the dark. Swift also confirms that the double agent within Cream Cake still hasn't been eliminated, but must be. It's clear by this point of the clean-up that someone is playing both sides pretty effectively, enabling Chernoff to stay ahead of the game. It's also put onto Bond to bring Chernoff in alive. The coup is down to him. Swift shares what Bond already suspected, namely that Chernoff is here and Smolin and Heather are with him. He's playing Possum out on Chow Island, which Bond will have to infiltrate undercover if he hopes to bring the mission to a close. Swift has arranged for transport at night. He also confirms that the target on 007's back is a hungry one. This remaining vestige of Smirsh is desperate to bring Bond to an end after so many years of foiled plans and eggs on the face. Within minutes of their meeting, Swift is murdered and the couple move cautiously through the city, dodging two young pursuers until opportunity to engage and dispatch them makes itself apparent outside of the Peninsula Hotel. Bond knows that he's negotiating moves in Hong Kong on a knife's edge, and so it comes as some relief to have the final scene set. Bond and Ebby access Chung Chow Island by Sampan, and 007 reconnoitres the property, burying an oilskin package some distance from the KGB villa for retrieval later. With his preparations complete, Bond makes himself an easy target for Chernoff to capture, by resting in the open with Ebby on the beach below the safe house. The two are apprehended predictably and brought inside. Ebby is put with Smolin, Heather, Jungle, and Dietrich, who will be executed at dawn the next morning. Bond, meanwhile, is given a talking head spiel for a few minutes on the finer points of power, karma, and control, then offered a breakfast, Placed in a cell, Bond centers himself and prepares for whatever will be his mode of torment or death that evening. It comes, hours later, when he's instructed to swap his clothes for a pair of overalls, and he's brought back upstairs. Chernov introduces him to four Robinsons, prisoners of the Russian state, whose only recourse to freedom comes from their ability to stay alive as hunters, killers, on special missions like this. The game Chernov has planned is a catch-and-kill-me-if-you-can in the night. Two of the Robinsons will be equipped with handguns, one will have a commando dagger. The final assassin will have a mace, a short Chinese fighting iron with a spiked steel ball hanging from a chain. He gives Bond a luger with four rounds only, half of a normal magazine, and two final hours of rest. The death game starts with Bond and his five-minute head start. He uses it productively by retrieving his buried package, which turns out to be a COAP, Covert Operations Accessory Pack. This was provided for him by CUTE in Paris. Inside, a flare, a knife, a grenade, a garroting wire, and a needle gun of compressed air are all waiting for him. His overalls now full of weaponry, the odds are shifting way more heavily in his direction. Using the flare gun, Bond stuns the Robinsons as they make their initial approach, and approximating their distance, uses the grenade quickly to dispatch two of his would-be four assailants. Bond steals away to the village and hides near the Pak Tai Temple, awaiting combat. It comes, and in the form of a surprise attack with the mace, which shears Bond's arm and leaves him sick to his stomach. Two well-placed shots from his Luger, though, take care of that threat, but one remaining was still shooting from the darkness of the square and advancing. Fortunately, Bond's hide was saved by the timely interference of Richard Han, one of Swift's associates who was tasked with tailing 007 and helping if things got sticky. Well, their conversation is a short-lived one, as Han is taken out by Heather, or Irma Wagen, the double agent who had blown cream cake from the very start. Heather explains to Bond, while holding him at gunpoint, that she's worked for the kgb since her teens she attempts to kill bond but he flips the script on her in three decisive moves a knee to the crotch a foot to the spine and a bullet in the head it's blunt brutalist action writing here from gardner daylight begins to break as bond works his way back up to the safe house hoping to stop the executions in time he succeeds in picking off the remaining guards including misha and enters to find the victims all chained together, except for Ebby, who lies prostrate on three sawhorses. Norman Murray is there, whose presence and words fill in the rest of the puzzle of betrayal for Bond. He and Heather Dare had been working together from the start, helping Chernoff remove the last traces of cream cake. Bond uses his compressed air dart gun and kills the Irish turncoat. Finally, with no more help available to him, Chernoff sees sense and unlocks the prisoners who quickly turn the shackles on him. The department's resident in Hong Kong is notified, and Bond leans into the oncoming oblivion. He wakes in a hospital bed, his arm in a plaster cast. The resident tells Bond that he's been out for about a day and that Chernoff has already been sent to London. Smoline and the others will be gainfully redeployed, and as for Ebby, well... She and Bond will enjoy a few days in Hong Kong before heading back overseas and into whatever adventure next waits for them.
1: All right, well... As I say always, I couldn't done it better myself. Uh, good job there, Scott, uh, breaking that story down for us. Yeah, I have a
0: spoiler, spoiler heavy, but you know,
1: if you're coming to a Bond literary podcast and you don't know the story, well, go ahead and read it or get the Cole's notes and then come back and listen to the rest of it. You know, like there's got to be I a certain if there are Cole's time. notes
0: for for Bond novels,
1: uh, that's really curious. I th- in America, I think they're called cliff like, I don't notes, aren't think aren't they?
0: They are called Cliff Notes, yeah. Over here they're called Sparks Notes. But it's interesting yeah. to think, like, because if if you've got Cole's notes, you've basically made it as a classical novelist, haven't you?
1: That is true. That is a definite definitive sign whatever, of so. of enduring legacy in the literary <laughs> world.
0: Establishment. So. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you got a
1: Cole's notes, yeah. Right. Okay, well, it's no
0: deals, Mr. Bond time, and it's angle time. We rate all of our books here on Bond by Numbers by an angle acronym. And this is carried over from years ago when we did the James Bond. And it is years now. It's like, what, 2015? We looked at our Bond novels. We did them all, uh, the the Fleming novels. Uh, Anyway, the acronym stands for...
1: A, Allies and Adversaries. N for Narrative. G for girls, as in bond girls, bond women, what have you. L is for location, locale. And E is for equipment. We rate each of these out of five. Mm
0: -hmm. We sure do. And that gives us an index for scoring, which we use to rank and kind of sequence the the stories. That's right. (sighs) Let's start with allies and adversaries. Let's give the people what they want to know, Josh, our scores Mm -hmm. on this book.
1: Well, let's take a look at who we have for our allies and adversaries, and then we'll sort of go through, you know, the pros and cons in this particular story. So, for allies, uh, we have M, Big Mick, Swift, mm-hmm. Maxim Smolin, mm-hmm. cute mm-hmm. Richard Chan, cute. Big Thumb Chan, Jungle Baisley, and Miss Moneypenny. Mm-hmm. In adversaries, we have right. yeah yeah. In adversaries, we have Black. Uh, Blackfriars slash Chernov, uh, Norm Murray, Mishka, Ingrid, the four Robinsons, Yakov, Bogdan, Pavel, and Seaman. So I guess Pussy Galore has been (laughs) trumped in that respect. Dethroned. Uh, Dethroned. (laughs) And Ying and Yang. (laughs) Not racist at all. Uh, (laughs) No. Yeah.
0: Uh, not at all,
1: yeah. You'll notice there's two names missing from that list, but I'm putting them under the girls uh, category.
0: Yeah, yeah, we can talk about the girls, yeah. yeah. And we can talk about how they kind of tread into both swimming lanes, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, Norman Murray's an interesting character. He's good and he's bad, though ultimately he's working for Chernoff. He's a crooked cop. Uh, but I will admit this, for the first half of the book, I did really like him. Uh, I think he's got a lot of character, he's got a lot of personality. Gardner did a good job making us like him and believe in him. And I liked Bond in Ireland with him and under his auspices. I thought it was really convincing. I, I thought that Norman Murray was, he, he as turncoats go, he's an interesting turncoat. Uh, if a little bit, like I didn't understand the I motivation for him to get in bed with. I didn't understand that. Yeah. Like, that bothered me because he was such a good character, but that part of him was not written at all any way satisfying.
1: I pictured, like, um, someone like uh, Stephen Ray, Liam Neeson, or young Liam Neeson or someone in that kind of role, you know? But I think Stephen Stephen Ray fits the best because he has that very kind of, like, working man kind of look about him, um, Irish public servant, you know what I mean? So uh, that's kind of who I visualized when I saw Norm Murray. And and based on the descriptions as well. Um but yeah, I was disappointed with his with his villainous turn. Uh but overall I did enjoy his character in the in the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh
0: Mick Sloan, just your average secret dude who can arrange shit, but everybody needs a Mick Sloan in their pocket. He's cool. I like the I like the fact that there's no nonsense about him, and the only thing the only stipulation he puts on him is that he doesn't want to go up into Northern Ireland, you know, which is in the late 80s, obvious reasons there We're the kind of sidestepping or Gardner is as an English writer sidestepping the, the troubles. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I like Mick Sloan. I thought he was cool, but he is he's very, very, you know to the point, and away he goes again. But he's neat. He's neat.
1: Yeah. What about Maxim Smolin? I mean, he was kind of set up as as a villain, kind of a very kind of mm-hmm. a, one that mm-hmm. we've seen before. You know what I mean? Like in the previous books. That's right. But he then
0: was set up that way. Yep.
1: But then, unlike it's like an opposite of Norm Murray, where he's actually the ally, and Norm Murray is the adversary. So they mm-hmm. they swap, you know, those roles mm-hmm. in the story. Um Yeah,
0: they sure do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting. I like though, them. I like yeah. Smolin. I, I think I think that, you know, even if he was
0: a bit more of a plot point than like a dynamic character, because he just kind of disappears again at the end he, of, as, as well. His getaway from the castle reasons. in Ireland is really neat though, like with the hidden car and all the stuff that he hides in the, in the woods. I like that. I like the fact that he's resourceful. And I did think that during the interrogation scene, he really did hold those pages for me and I was interested in him. But you're absolutely right with what you say. The way Gardner sets him up, he's just another one of these kind of ex- Um, KGB, XGRU, X, you know, gosh, like I said in my plot summary, the acronyms behind this guy is overwhelming, right? Like the different agencies he's been part of, like he's just set up as a big bad, like a big old guy who is a bad guy and watch out for him. But he's he's more interesting because of the way we get that sort of flipped script with him. And yeah, I, I thought he was good. I thought he was good.
1: I will say at this point, I'm getting kind of sick of James Bond being in situations like where he's in some safe house owned by the villain or in other sort of setting. And he ends up getting like imprisoned and then (laughs) interrogated. I'm getting kind of sick of that. I just feel like.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I am too. I just feel like John Gardner has a big
1: Jones for a Casino Royale. And he's kind of like, (laughs) he's repeating those tropes in these stories a lot. Um, Because if you look at. Yeah.
0: With with that in mind, did you like the way it was flipped here and how the interrogator was the one of freedom?
1: Yeah, I think this was a nice change of pace. And even the sequence, which I knew that was coming uh, or ex- ex- anticipated uh, near, towards the end of the book, I felt that was done a little bit better than what Gardner has done pr- previously mm-hmm. on top of that. Okay, cool
0: uh well what about the other adversary and ally, and allies so we talk about our small in there we both liked him and kind of appreciate the way of something a little bit different there yeah. what about swift the handler what did you think of him i, I felt he was a bit shady but okay like yeah. nothing really flashy or special but it's the first time gardner's given us a role like this in any in any detail certainly in any key scene uh i thought that was cool you know
1: his, yeah um, he reminds me feel like a, he's a believable character. He's like a, he's like a Henderson or or like a mm, book version yes, or, or the book yes, vers- or, yeah. or almost like the book version of Strangways
0: Str- Strangways yeah he had
1: that kind of vibe to him or uh, he was a mysterious intriguing character and I wanted more of him and I was disappointed that he got killed off so easily. But he also served as a mm-hmm. device to kind of keep the suspense and uh, the adrenaline going in the last part of the story. So it, 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 did. Still, it worked. Yeah. It, worked for, it worked for me. Um, he represented the stakes mm-hmm. very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same with Richard Chan. I thought he was a, it was a, it was a cool addition. Like him and his like he was a cool addition. Yeah, yeah. I was disappointed of him being killed off. I felt that was just kind of like oh you know. You can say maybe... Yeah, he's it's, killed in his only scene. He's killed in his only scene after saving the day, you know? And there's not much thought of him afterwards. Uh, That's right, yeah. yeah. Big Thumb Chan, I don't know if he was...
0: Yeah, he, he's cool. He was cool. I liked him. He's certainly typecast, I know. You get the feeling the Bond, though, and he had really worked together. And I think that... I think that one of the things Gardner has improved upon here is the kind of small ally writing. I feel like it's it's believable here, the relationships, yes. and I, th- I like the fact that Bond has got Norman and Mick and Big Thumb Chang, and like you're just kind of wondering who's he going to call up next. How deep and wide is Bond's own little rolodex, you know, yeah. for help around the world? I think that's pretty cool, and I like this character, but yeah, he's certainly typecast, and I don't know about you, but the the way the dialogue is kind of has written out the pronunciations of words and stuff like it. Uh, I don't know. It, it kind of took me out of it a little bit, like. But I, I
1: get what he's trying to. It do. is very Ian Fleming, though, in that terms of the writing style. It is of, absolutely of, of yeah, the dialogue. Is, yeah. So you, yeah. I, I can yeah. I can understand that at least where that inspiration came from. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like I like the ambiguity of his character. Like he was probably like half in the half with like the the Chinese underworld, half with British intelligence. And that's
0: right. So yeah, you get that
1: feel. There was kind of an ambiguity to him, which I enjoyed. Jungle Baisley, This was a character that was talked about several times, and I don't know. Yeah, I just found that shows up at the it was end. A but... stupid name, Jungle Basley, just because it's translating like mm-hmm. the German name or something. I. Uh, that's right.
0: Yeah. I, it's, it is cool. It's true, though. Like he's he's a character like we had in Roll of Honor, you know, the the other computer uh, guy who just kind of shows up there and Bond has an engagement with him in the parking garage. Yeah. And he helps him and he throws him in the trunk like he's just a guy who's talked a lot, but he only shows up after. Do you know what I mean? And he doesn't really do much, but he's necessary in the story, I guess, as one of the Emily's uh, him and Suzanne, they have minor roles to play in the story or major roles in the operation, minor roles to play in the actual novel that we read.
1: I wonder if Emily's is a real thing, or is this just some kind of believable jargon that Gardner does so well? Oh, it's a real thing. It's-, it's a real
0: thing, because they've talked about it in The Americans, remember? Oh, you're right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Good point. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, adversaries. I mean, we get some interesting ones here. Blackfriar, uh, Blackfriar uh, Kolya Chernoff, I like the nobility of his, even though, like, he was a sadist, there was kind of a nobility to his villainy. Like, we're playing a game here, Bond, and, you know, we're op- we're opposites on other sides. There's, like, a respectability. But at the same time, even though I respect you, I have to basically, for, for Schmirsch, I have to make you suffer. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah, and we have yeah, to do what yeah. we have to do. Like, he seemed like he didn't want to be treated as, like, a sociopath. Like, I mean, the... Even Gardner mentioned it. The most famous sociopath in the in 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 the Soviet history was probably uh the very malevolent uh, Beria, who was like the founder of Smirsch. Mm-hmm. Um if you read up on Beria, mm-hmm. he was terrible. And uh they do a great version of him in The Death of Stalin, the um the film in the yeah, film yeah. They, they do a really good send up on on Beria and that because even though it's a comedy it they they very well show what a terrible person Beria was you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, with mm-hmm. the NKVD and smirch and everything like that but yeah so like I I found you know Shurnov was believable in that is it, it was it was it was almost an improvement on Colonel Sun.
0: okay I see what you mean yeah yeah, yeah okay. Okay, Colonel Sun was a bit more sinister, like you say. He he didn't give Bond like a running man game, you know, no. the Stephen King novel to play with. But exactly, uh, yeah, I get you, I get you. Okay, so the Robinsons. I thought this was a really cool idea. It's probably something that there is actual precedent for, but it's it's also very comic booky. It is, and I I don't know, like I don't know how you felt. I, I enjoyed it. I was I was going with it with the story. I was going with it.
1: I find Gardner is on fire when he balances the verisimilitude that he wants to portray in terms of the of the espionage but also being a bond Mm -hmm. story so which is a little Mm -hmm. more escapist and i think he balances those two things really well like when he's on he he does it right when he does this in my opinion Mm -hmm. and i think these these examples were, were at first i was like oh really and then I'm like, oh, their backgrounds. I mean, that's pretty freaking dark for like an escapist spy story. But then he still uses it. You know what I mean? Like sometimes yeah, when I read a John does. Gardner yeah. novel, I see it as a continuation of the Bond series. But then I realize, you know, we're not continuing the Bond film series through Gardner. We're continuing the, the Ian Fleming. Novel series,
0: right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's interesting. We're,
1: we're keeping that.
0: I, I sometimes feel it a bit different. I feel it kind of the opposite. I, I do feel that he writes movie treatments first, and then somehow he filters the Fleming into them.
1: Yeah, he that's kind
0: of how I feel. That's
1: kinda ha- But that's kind of what I think. What they're trying to show here is they're continuing the the Fleming okay. novels. Right. Through John Gardner, right? That's even explicit. Okay, at, that's, okay. that's very, that's yeah. very implicit at the at the at the get go, because mm-hmm. Bond is like it's, it's it's like what like ten years later in the eighties, and he has like you know the wing the he has the wingtips and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um, but yeah,
0: <laughs> okay. So what was your mark for uh, adversaries and allies?
1: Well, I found in in this book in particular, Gardner did a really good job even from what he's done before, is that these allies, these allies and adversaries, they populate the story when they're needed to, they coalesce mm-hmm. with the twists and turns of the plot, and they're given just the littlest of nuances to have agency in the story, and they also fit the locales that they represented. So it was very yes. much yeah. like a, a triumph of, of function and form in regards to how the allies and adversaries are represented in this story. And for that, I give this actually my highest mark of this book, uh which is four out
0: of five Wow, well, I also gave it a four. I also gave it a four um and I took a point away almost almost completely for the norman Murray you know issue with the end and how undeveloped his his turning was, like I just didn't see it coming, and that was' my it's not thinking. so much like oh i wish he I wish he hadn't. it was more like, why did he? Like, I, I wanted the explanation, and it just was never there in his character or his motivation or anything, you know. But I, I like the way the allies and adversaries work in this story as a suite, as a collective. They are interesting. Yes, we can pick apart things with little ones, but as a whole, I don't think people reading this book, going to this book, are going to be disappointed with the cast of characters. And I also think it's probably one of the better complete casts in a Gardner text.
1: So, I definitely agree. Probably the best since Icebreaker. All right. Well, I'm interested now
0: then to see your score for the remaining categories. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and just tell you my narrative comments. I mean, I, f- I felt this was... Uh, I'll just lay it out there. I thought that No Deal's Mr. Bond is the most straight ahead and best paced of the Gardner novels. It isn't ridiculous. It's tenable, thanks in large part to the planning that went into the operation cream cake set up in the novel and its execution. I really liked the way this book began, and I really liked the way that it wasn't just a, a one-off cold open, but it was a cold open that played with the rest of the story. It was important yes. to the rest of the story. Yes, yes being tricked by a woman is still part of this narrative but not to a significant or surprising degree and i actually think that where we see oh you know like the female snake in the grass later or in previous books rather it works in this story's favor because the swings and the shocks aren't really as predictably set as they are in other ones and they're not as big deal as they are when heather turns at the end of this story it doesn't really affect too much for me because it it doesn't really matter because the bond girl he's with is the one who is the one we want him to be with. Yes. So it's not like the girl he's been with the whole story is the bad one. This is the peripheral girl. Yes. So yeah, we we get new shocks and we get news, new swings in the narrative, right? Like the death of Swift that you mentioned a minute ago or the Hong Kong contact. There's lots of fear from both sides here about killing and spilling blood in the Irish Republic. I would have liked that teased out a little bit more like both the Russians the uh, and the Germans I guess by extension and the British are terrified to let blood spill in the Irish Republic. Swift mentions it, Gardner details it a couple of times, M is concerned about it which is why he doesn't tell him about Chernoff's connection or sorry about Smolin's connection through the exposition and of course the roadblock forces Chernoff to give Bond up really easily in Ireland. I just think a few words of historical context as to why the British and the foreign powers were so hesitant to make trouble in Ireland would have helped contextualize that locale for readers in the future. And I think Gardner is really set in the time of sensitivity. And I get it. I do get it. But I just would have wanted a little bit more on why Ireland is such a hotbed for all foreign powers to just tiptoe around. That would have helped me. But my narrative score is exceptionally high. I went four and a half here with my narrative because from the minute I started it, I was more interested in this adventure i think because of that early setup with the submarine and cream cake and the retrospect five years and then five years after Mm -hmm. i thought that this book was structured really well i liked it. it it was straight ahead i loved the hong kong swing i liked it all it i just it just doesn't feel perfect to me but it feels really strong so i don't usually gush for this with the gardner books but i'm going four and a half and um I'm interested to hear what your score is, obviously, because it's a wee bit lower than mine. So go for it.
1: Well, actually, I tied with my previous one. It wasn't higher, it was just it went, or lower. It was just it was, oh, okay. was, just, it was, it was just tied, <laughs> okay. essentially. Okay. So I gave the narrative cool. a four out of five. Um, I feel the same way as you about it in terms of like it's an improvement. It's very tight, it's well paced. The, the downtime is believable, and it works for the storytelling. I never felt it slowed down at mm-hmm. any point. In the, in the last half of the book, there's set piece after set piece after set piece, and it flows really well. Um, it utilizes <laughs> nostalgia, but not in a fan servicey way. Like, you get that mention of Tracy when he's with Ebby, uh, and that sort of works well into the narrative. And the very fact that, you know, you get a flashback as kind of the cold open, so to speak... It already takes it out of that previous formula he's established because he's focusing on telling a story here and not just giving yeah. like a Bond, just another another Bond adventure, another mm-hmm. fan servicey mm-hmm. kind of adventure like he's done recently. You know, bringing back Spectre again and who's ahead of Spectre now and oh, you know, all, all these same kind of That's tropes. Right. Yeah. Now yeah. he does use utilize the same tropes as he've used before, but he, he su- does yeah. he subverts them and 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 believable ways that make sense to the story uh, with the exception of course of norm murray who i just found that was a bit of that was like this book's version of out of nowhere kind of plot twist in my opinion Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. if you look back at it that
0: that was this this book's version of blofeld's daughter
1: yeah this this, exactly or nanny's turn uh oh gosh yeah in the previous book um but that said if you look at the structure of the story you can see how it makes sense that norm murray would be a, a turncoat but they just didn't get into his character enough after giving already a good dose of his character for for us to really find that so mm-hmm. i think maybe mm-hmm. if he had been a little less if he had been been a little less three-dimensional the turn would have made sense but because we got more into his character mm-hmm. and who he is to me that just wasn't the character that i knew from the first half of the novel That's exactly right versus That's to exactly where he right. a, appears at the end yeah. Um, Let me ask you, Josh, just on this point, like, so
0: we, let's just pretend that when Bond leaves Ireland and he goes to Paris, that's it. Norm Murray never shows up again, right? Let's just assume that. Yes. Nothing, nothing is affected in the story. Like, everything that takes place, we could assume, happens because Chernoff's network is deep and wide. Like, we don't need Norm Murray to be an informant. We don't need Norm Murray in order, like it's It's almost like that was added it's superfluous to the plot. It's not just poor character writing. if he had been left as a as a an ally of bonds who kind of gets frustrated with him by the time he makes all these potential messes that he needs to clean up in Ireland before he leaves mm-hmm. that would have been just fine it would have that would have been fine. The relationship would have been a little bit fractious and a bit strained, but that's it. When Gardner goes at the end and plugs him in there, it actually complicates things for the reader
1: more than it does simplifies or it, clears things up. It does. It also takes away like kind of like the, the end of the climax, you know, where Bond nabs Chernoff. It's almost like, yeah, yeah. but you know, but the do his evil deed and, you know, and Bond mm-hmm. like hands up Chernoff and put your hands up and all this sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden Norm shows up and, you know, and Chernoff's like, well, I'm putting my hands down again, obviously. Uh, back That's to right, business. Yeah. Let's continue what we're doing. Back but to then, business, But yeah. then Bond uses his pen, and Murray's dead, even after his big reveal. And then afterwards, like, enough, put your hands up again, enough, You know, mm-hmm, like, it mm-hmm. just seems like it's superfluous. And the, the Was twist... Was it just th- a way of Gardner any... getting to use the weapon? Is that all it is? Mm-hmm. Is it just a way of Gardner getting to use the weapon? It very well could be, because he did set up the Shukrav's gun of the weapon itself, so he had to use it at some point. And... You know, uh, but in the end, it's like, why have the turn in the first place? Like, I could understand if this led Mm -hmm. to kind of like a to-be-continued situation. I'm like, oh, well, that's really interesting if that happened. But, you know, that's not what Mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. So, to me, the the, the, the turn, the heel turn of Norm Murray is superfluous and doesn't contribute anything to the narrative except, as you said, function as a way for him to use his pen, which he could have used, you know, in other sequences prior to that, even during the whole, like, manhunt sequence. But... Anyway, so I definitely think it's improvement on previous stories. Like he's learning how to like build a strong narrative and put Bond into it and make the and the characters and the and the supporting players into it in a way that helps with the world building uh, that he's trying to portray. Like, I think he did a very good job in this story. And so, you know, like he goes back to those old tropes, but he subverts them in a really interesting way. So... I would have the narrative almost full marks, uh, but if it wasn't for that Norm Murray turn and how, and maybe this is foreshadowing of the next category, how terrible the women were written in this story.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Why don't, why don't you continue your thoughts, complete your thoughts rather. They were the Mac- subject of Guffins, girls, our third section.
1: They were MacGuffins and plot conveniences. So we have Abby heritage, Heather dare slash wagon, or Wagen, or however you pronounce it. I guess it's Wagen, vegan. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But anyways... Vagen, um, I would just say. Wagen, v- v- okay. So, the, the fact that, like, Ebby just, like, latches onto Bond is just immediately, and she's it's almost to the point where, like, she's almost, like, annoying, and Bond is like, okay, I'll screw you. You know what I mean? Like, it's it just... She has no, like, bearing on the story at all, in my opinion. And they establish her character being somewhat intuitive and be able to do some good espionage with like the names and stuff and what she was doing and Mm -hmm. giving her cloak to like that poor maid and and stuff like that. So, you know, they set her up that way, but as soon as she came to Bond, she just like turns into another gardener and Bond girl to me. Like she she just has no like dimension at all, except, you know, I mean, the only thing they give her is that they make her competent and not as, and not a damsel in distress. Like, or they make her competent. They make her follow Bond's orders in a way like she doesn't get in the way of the situation. She just kind of gets captured and that's it. And then she gets saved, but there's really not much more to her in my opinion. And that, to me, that's symptomatic of like him being unable to write intriguing female characters. Or, you know, is it is it just a quota demanded by the pop publisher that he needs to have these Bond girls? As for Heather Dare, they he did a good job setting her up like as a... Uh, you know, of, of, uh, like the heel turn was believable in how he set it up because of how we're we're getting so little information about her, just the just the clues that we need. Oh, well, it's kind of confusing why she would make a pass at Bond when she's actually interested in Smolin. So that kind of makes sense story wise and could be seen as like a slip up almost. So Bond's able to figure it out. And, it, you know, they, they drilled it to us. There is a mole. So I was suspect, I was, because we haven't seen Heather for a while and we know Smolan's not going to be the, the mole because he's already been outed. It just to make sense to me that she would have been the villain. So Gardner did set that up, but I just don't think he, like, you know, he made her character uh, very interesting to me. I think he's still in the same mm-hmm. category. I gave him two and a half out of five just because uh, Heather was developed a little bit better. But I don't know, like, I was very disappointed with how Ebby turned out.
0: Okay. Two and a half. So you gave him a pass. Well, I'm going to disagree with you here. I do not think that the girls as individuals are well-written. So I I do agree with you in that part. Okay. Because as individuals, they're not well-written, but I disagree that their agency is nothing because Ebby is the girl that Bond rescued off the beach. So the fact that there is a history there that was instigated through the cold open. Yeah, but she was I like a teenage girl. Wasn't she a teenage girl or She's something? Five, Only five years earlier. No, okay. she was like, like, you know, maybe in her early 20s or late oh, okay. teens or something. But I, my, my point is that, yeah, regardless of her age, I disagree that There was no agency for them because the whole... That's why I think the story works is because those girls were part of Operation Cream Cake. They weren't just girls that came into the story. They were the agents who were trying to turn these big targets in the GRU or the KGB. So I don't think Ebby necessarily needs to be well-developed to have a role in the story because Cream Cake itself was the story that we got a snippet of at the start, right? So, I, I mean... The, the I, part that I find a little bit fan service and a little bit unnecessary—it's it's on page one twenty-eight of our books, if, if you're curious about it. But it's where Bond feels like um, she reminds him of Tracy. Yeah. Now, to me, is that just like a sex-conscious Bond in the late '80s needing to play monogamous politics, or is it—is it authentic for the character? Or is it just fan service? Like, where where do you think that reference comes in? Like, and, and how do
1: you think it, it it sits? I would say it's probably in the middle. You know, it's okay. It's yeah. a it's a nineteen eighties. We know that, like, for example, Dalton's Bond was the monogamous Bond, right? Because he, he yeah. was he yeah. was kind of like you know not a big player as the previous Bond films. You know, because things like AIDS and stuff were a big deal back then, and That's other right. situations. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, and they're just trying to emphasize that, especially like in a conservative area like the '80s too. Um, mm-hmm. So I can see them, you know, I can see Gardner writing in that fashion. But to me, like I just felt like Trace using the Tracy thing was just was just kind of Bond trying to. Keep the Fleming sweep going. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. that was Gardner mm-hmm. trying to keep the Fleming sweep to, going yeah, yeah. in the storylines, which he's been pla- which has been blatantly doing in the past couple of books by keeping by keeping Spectre around, you know, for a certain amount mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. So you think it's just kind of
0: it's just there to keep that going. Yeah. Um, I went for three and a half with my girls because although I agree with what you're saying, that they're not richly written as individuals, I am generally pleased with how they've been written. Because I didn't really get to care much about Heather Dare, I didn't find her betrayal was terribly, you know, impactful as a reader or indeed to the plot. But getting back to the point about Murray, she could have easily been and obviously was Chernoff's, you know, snake in the grass the whole time. And, and that's fine. Like, I, I don't mind that. Yeah, I don't no, mind absolutely. that at all. Like, and That's she could have been the one who was given the intel. She could have been the one that was helping him stay two steps ahead, which she obviously was. So, why Murray also had to be bad? I just think Heather Dare's role as a turncoat or as a double agent is something that makes Murray's even less necessary. you yes, know yes, from a plot absolutely. point of view? So. I, th- I thought it was okay. I agree they're not well developed, but I disagree that they don't have as much agency as you seem to think they don't.
1: Uh, I, th- I think they I went I went a half. I went more emphatic. I was more emphatic in my in my reviewing that how this, based on the what you, you know based on I knew what, what of their backgrounds about them being rescued and and them in the, and them and you know in, and their role in their early part of the book. Um, I was disappointed to the extent of how their characters ended up. That I was just sort of, especially Ebby, I was just like, uh-huh. I don't care if they did have some sense of agency. To me, like the way they were written, robbed them of that agency and made them plot conveniences and MacGuffins to me. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't interested okay. in their characters anymore. And I, you know, I was more interested in what in the stakes that Bond was into. And I found that the whole romance between them was just a quota that Gardner had to put in there because he needs Bond to have his sex scene or. Or, you know, or, oh, okay. or, or yeah, bond fair part. enough.
0: But, you know, the right. girls, the girls I found more refreshing this time simply because they didn't need to be as heavily written. They didn't need to be as important. Like, Bond, like, there's that scene where Ebby and Ebby looks at Bond when she first meets him and she does recognize who he is, but she says she doesn't because that obviously is going to help the situation. And, like, I think that that's. That's the type of girl writing you get here. Bond isn't interested in women in this story. Like, if you notice at the end of this book, he and Ebby, oh, they're going to stay in Hong Kong for a bit and then go back home. Like, that's the end of that one. There's yeah. no hint of this being a lasting relationship,
1: like there was with that ridiculous Cedar. Well, why put them character. in the book then? Like, like, why why put that in the book? Why not just focus on
0: because they have to be the plot points and the conveniences that you're talking about. They are the things that they're okay. the targets that the GRU is looking to eliminate. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the plot ones devices. that Chernoff.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they're
0: not—they're not made plot devices. Like the whole Operation Cream Cake is the plot device. Yeah, that is the plot device of the book. I don't think you can nail the girls for being plot devices when the mission is the girls just get the girls out because they're targets no like we don't true. get to see the other two we don't get to see the other two because they're away in hong kong already right like yeah uh, jungle but for me, and, i would uh, like them to have
1: been better characters because better characters okay. uh, it makes a book more enjoyable to me like you can write a simple right. plot spy story but it's the characters you know that you latch on to that you make it really enjoyable it and, is and stuff yeah. and you care about yes. the characters i want to care more than just about bond i want to care about these young these brave young women okay you know, who, who ha- there you go, go along. Fine. I want to see their intuition. I want to see their, their resourcefulness, you know, like I want to see that. Yeah. And, and I just didn't get that I with the story. You. We're stuck in this, in the same situations, even though like, it seemed like it was set up to be something different. It went back to what it was, you know, just in, just in a better written way, in my opinion. So okay. I don't know, maybe it's, a, maybe they're more deserving of a three, but I'll stay with two and a half. I hear
0: what you're saying. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I, I just wasn't bothered with the girls in this story. Like, in in the previous books, there's always I, been some the bothered. girls that I've really disliked. Yeah. I've really disliked about one of the things or yeah. one of the, the ways that the girls have come about here. I felt yeah. they were what they were, part of the cream cake mission, but this wasn't much about that. Bond is on a salvage operation here, yeah. and that's the whole purpose of the, of the thing. I don't mind having an adventure where the girls are just needing to be rescued because they're agents in trouble. Like, I, I don't mind that. I'm more interested in Bond and how he's going to use his network of of his own little social and personal contacts to get where he needs to get and to stay ahead of the game. Yeah. Like, I didn't mind that the girls were poorly written in that way that you did because I saw their plot importance as yeah more driving than their character importance. But, uh, I, you know, normally I'd be with you. But in this story, because of the way the story was set up, yeah. I didn't mind that they were weakly drawn. Yeah, uh, but that's that's just that's just the way we see it differently. How about locales? How do you see the locales?
1: Well, yeah. Before we go to locales, I'll just say one more thing: is that just because I give okay. a particular category a low mark doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the story as a whole. Like I, I no, very much, en- I very much enjoy the story, and d- just to me, my feelings about how the women were betrayed in the story, I think it could have been better, and and that and that's simply <laughs> all I'm trying to say. <laughs> Moving on, locales. Yeah, um, I thought the locales were good. Bond, see, with Gardner, he tells us where Bond is, but he doesn't show us where he is, in my opinion. And hmm. that's that, okay. I think, is still a fault of it. That's, I just think because I just don't think he's a a globetrotter like Fleming was. He just doesn't. He he doesn't know the hotels. He doesn't, or he hasn't. Sorry, he knows the hotels. He knows the locations that he probably researches about, and maybe he's been to some of them, but not in the way that Fleming has. Fleming has tasted all the food. He's been to every room of the. Been mm-hmm. to, he's been to. He's stayed at the hot, many hotels many times. He's been to every little port that you can in in some tropical location or some exotic location. He knows that he knows the culture. He knows the society, despite his imperialistic views of it but at the same time like <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. He, he, he writes about the food he writes about the smell and the, and the culture and, and all yeah, this he's stuff. a better travel writer he's yes. a better travel writer and to me gardner is still to me like this is someone doing really good research and maybe a little bit of their mm-hmm. own uh, of, of of you know of their own minor travel logging writing a story and so when he describes something it's like oh there's a castle there's a road okay, we're in Dublin, okay, okay, you know, you know. okay, like, I never got to say, even though we were in Hong Kong, it's because how the supporting characters were portrayed in Hong Kong, that's how I got the feel of, of the locales in this writing, okay. All right. but in how he describes okay. Hong Kong and whatnot, like, I could have, he could have maybe done a little bit better, but I think he did an okay job based on what we've seen previously, so... I give it three and a half out of five, in in terms of of locale, in terms of everything that, that that we've seen so far.
0: All right, well, I mean that's a pretty generous score from you based on what the way you were setting it up. I kind of thought, yeah, you go a bit lower than that. Um, I liked I liked Hong Kong here. I think there is a little more effort here on Gardner's part to bring it to life, because if you think about it, like when Bond and Abby are going through the the shopping, the the shopping mo- the center, you know, like he recognizes the. Um, the anachronism of this this um, wind is it a wind or a jazz ensemble playing New Orleans jazz music and he has a little smile there because he recognizes the tune. Like I think he does kind of put that that kind of multicultural cosmopolitan touch to the environment of Hong Kong. I, I like that part of the story i was there i wasn't i wasn't immersed in the color and the smells and the textures of the place the way i would be with fleming but for gardner i thought this was a a really good effort i felt it was more than world book encyclopedia research i felt like he was trying to linger in these places he was trying to we've got yeah we've we've got ireland and we've got hong kong and there's a lot of airport hoteling and stuff and I, i i appreciate that but I felt like the Hong Kong bit, particularly uh, Mount, um Island, I, I thought that was well rendered. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're right. There's a lot of sort of compounds and safe houses in the Gardner books. Like, wow, there's a lot of them. Um, but between them in this book, they had three of them in this book, didn't we? Between mm-hmm. them in this book... Um, I, I did think we got some, but no, we we don't have a description of the rivers and, you know, the... Well, we do get green. We get some of the green of Ireland that's kind of mentioned, it's plain lands or whatever. And we get some of that kind of history of... Uh, was it Ross Lane and all of that stuff? I mean, I think he's he's making an effort here. Oh, he uh, is. For what he's, it's worth, he's making an effort. My That's score was I exactly gave... the same as yours. I went oh, three cool. and a half, uh, so it was exactly the same as yours. Uh, I <laughs> but I might have just liked it a bit more. I was I was willing to to go along with it a bit more. You're right. He's not he's not Fleming's travel writer. Um, he's more action piece to action piece. Where are we going next? Let's get the action moving. Let's get the story where it needs to go. Whereas Fleming yeah. likes to linger. No, I don't think there's any foodie scenes in here at all. I don't think there's any. We've talked about that in in several of these Gardner reviews. The lack of foodie touch. We had some in the last one, which I thought was refreshing. We don't get much here, and that is a disappointment when you think of going to Hong Kong. You know, and yes, they have a meal at the restaurant or whatever, but there's no there's there's no celebration of the cultures here. You know, and it's action first. Uh, oh, if he has a packet of crisps or. You know, if he has corn on the cob at some point, you might hear yeah. about it. But
1: yeah, I guess it's I not should, a big part. I guess it's something that we should, like, kind of like, just expect from going here is that G- Gardner wants to tell a, a Tot Espionage story. That seems to be his goal. And this foodie mm-hmm. stuff, maybe he finds that it. You know, maybe it for the modern reader at that that time it Mm -hmm. slows things down, and it just takes away the momentum. So as a writer, I can understand where he's coming from. I just maybe it's that's my own fault, you know, for expecting him to be Fleming when he's his own writer. You know, he's just doing his own take on James Bond, even though he's continuing Mm -hmm. the Fleming sweep in in my, you know, in my view. So. Okay. Yeah, so I, I still gave it a pretty high mark, despite my opening salvo against it. Uh, <laughs> I do think he's improving here. Like, his Hong Kong sections were definitely the most compelling parts of the book for me. Even the Ireland, even the stuff in Ireland was a different change of pace as well. And, you know... Yeah, it was it, nice he, to be closer to home. Yeah, yeah the, the strong work he does with the supporting characters uh, sold the world building for me uh, more than just, you know, the descriptive writing. So. You know, uh, I think it, it. I think it. it I think he's on. I, I think he's uh, slowly. I think he's um, gradually Im- Im- improving on this particular category.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to the equipment. We've got. Uh, you know, we've got the covert operations accessory pack. We have the harmonica bugs placed in the telephones. We've mm-hmm. got the ASP again, featuring the, the baton. Um, we, yeah, the baton makes a makes a return. Although there is no vampire bat this time around. No vampire bats. We have bats. the. We have the sand, the sampan that's used uh, fleetingly in yeah. uh, in the denouement. and of course we've got the villains with their mace and all of that sort of stuff
1: too. The mace, right. yeah, and the hormone helicopter. The hor- <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, hormone. So it's a weird name, but uh, what, did you, what did we do? We do have a, a villain called Semen, so I guess I mean, I guess it fits. <laughs> it, it fits yeah, the, I, the the pubescent fantasy pretty well, I suppose. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> The uh, Siemens Hormone uh,
0: Helicopter.
1: <laughs> is that the one that's chasing uh, Connery and from Russia with love? That, is that a hormone? Is that what that is? Like, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. It's like a Bell Helicopter I, or something. No, it's a, no, this one's got double rotors, doesn't it? Okay. I think I know what you're talking They're, they're almost like the Hind Helicopters, like the mm. Russians use, sort of, maybe. Anyway. I did look it up. I did look it up, but I, uh, yeah. 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 But anyway, oh, yeah, and the pen gun also, and, and the oil skin, which is that... The pen pack- guns,
0: it's like just straight from Moonbreaker, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's true. And the, the compressed air is like live and let die. We're combining a couple of things there.
1: The compressed air, yeah. And, of course, you mentioned that, that package the and the oil skin, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I thought that was cool. I like that. Bond was very lucky to have decided to hide that before he was captured. But maybe he mm-hmm. anticipated mm-hmm. being captured by Chernoff at the uh you know outside the villa and so that's how he was able so that's t- so so they would he would, he would have that ace up his sleeve you know so that shows his proficiency as an agent as as an agent and it kind of excites you a little bit because you know like oh great a manhunt and this could be pretty grueling but then oh wait he's hidden the the package and Gardner set that up well so I was like oh this is going to be cool instead of being kind of scared for Bond in that last act which Mm -hmm. stakes are still pretty high but you know at least he has an advantage here and it could get really exciting so that was a good addition by Gardner
0: yeah Uh, I agree
1: Overall, I gave... I gave Oh, the
0: by f- the way, there's that Hormone helicopter if you want to have a look on my screen here.
1: Okay. Cool, cool. Interesting.
0: So it's got the two rotors. You see one on top of the other.
1: Yeah, I see. I see. Cool. That's really, really neat.
0: That's uh, one maybe better, more unlike uh, what you would expect for the Russian colors, you know, the Russian military.
1: Yeah, the Russian Heinz kind of design, s- s- similar. Well, I will say that... Um, In terms of equipment, I gave it a pretty fair score. I gave it like, you know, three and a half out of five. It wasn't anything spectacular, Mm -hmm. but it worked and served the story pretty well in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I went for a four. I I like the harmonica bugs. I like that they they weren't just a one-off. I like that they weren't a one-off, but he kept checking in with them. Yes. I thought that was good because there was payoff with them and you know, in so many other things with these Gardner books, we're not getting the payoff or the linger that we we talk about so much. We got a little bit with that because I think he went back to it two or three times. And the Covert Operations accessory pack, I liked the way the Cute was written into the story, meeting him in Paris, getting him this thing, and then he went and buried it in the garden. I, I liked that. I liked the resourcefulness of a bond with these things. And for that reason, I was willing to be a little more generous with it, you know, and yeah. Perhaps yeah. that's the theme of this episode. I'm being a bit generous with it, but I liked No Deals, Mr. Bond. I, I did. I
1: think it's kind of funny how Q is developed into almost like she's the, obviously the new Q, essentially. And but but <laughs> it's, but it's, but she's also like a Q that he can sleep with as well. As it's kind of yeah. it's kind of funny. Although it like, doesn't, right? It's off now. It's off. The
0: relationship well, is over.
1: But remember though, as soon as he sees her walks away, yeah. he's like, I'm gonna. Go, he's like, he's watching her butt as she walks away, and 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 he's like, yeah. I'm gonna call her up when I get back to London. You know. So it's just. He's it's like, yeah, but it's still, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's amusing, but she seems to be very kind of like the modern woman type, you know, where she's like, you know, oh yeah, she, she's, you know. other guys too. Exactly. So she's like, she's down for the casual sex, you know? So yeah, she's, she's not pining after him when he's abroad. That's for e- sure. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see you, you went three and a half. I'll just do the maths up here, pal. And we'll see uh, what our verdicts are for no deals, Mr. Bond. And as I'm doing this, you got any final comments?
1: Uh, no, only to say that um, while, you know, I, I, I made mean, my comments about how the women were portrayed in this story. Uh, while I do agree with you that it's a functional thing. Overall, I found, you know, I, I, I would say this is probably the best John Gardner book so far. Um, yeah well, I I want wanted to see more of the same in terms of the intricacy, not the exact storyline, but in terms of the intricacy of plotting and the development of like the supporting characters um, to, you know to help with the world building and maybe some improved travel logging in the, in the future. that's that's what I'm hoping that this kind of might have you know struck the right flint to, to you know mm-hmm. to, cre- to create a fire and Gardner to, to jump at these points in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm with you there, particularly with the travel writing thing. We're still waiting for the great travel writer, you know, um, because like you said, I don't feel like he's been to these places. A well-researched writer can trick you, and he hasn't really tricked us yet, although Hong Kong came close here. He did a good job with Iceland, and he did a good job with Scotland as well in the first book, but the rest of it, and I kind of liked some of the care he gave to uh, Bismarck's Crazy home, but that was also borrowed from Gone with the Wind. So I don't really <laughs> yeah. know how much of it is his own, uh, his own baby my here. dear. I don't anyway. give a
1: damn, <laughs> yeah.
0: I know you don't, but you did give a, a bit of a damn because you went 17 and a half out of 25, which is certainly a strong, strong pass. I thought it would be higher than for, that. Uh, I was 19.5, I was 19.5. I, I really like this one and more than you normally. I'm the guy who's a little tighter on the categories, but I, I like this one and I'm, I'm pleased that you did too. If uh, a little more cool on it than I was, but yeah, my verdict on uh, No Deals, Mister Bond. It's it's got to be the worst title of any of these so far, though. Like, what a terrible title!
1: Yeah, I think that was the last, isn't it? Kind of kind like- of thing. Like they they just attached to it, or maybe he couldn't think of a name and the publisher. Well, just- maybe you're not. Yeah, you're not going to just- call it Cream Cake, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. Not to uh, mention
1: we have a character. Oh my goodness, so many. He's trying to. He, I like how he's giving male double, male characters double entendres. I mean, that's pretty cool, I suppose. But uh, I don't know.
0: He does do that. You're quite right. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think that brings our discussion of this uh, literary gun barrel to an end.
1: <laughs> well, I'll say one thing. I do look forward to his future operation, not cream cake, but maybe in the modern era, uh, Cinnabon. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that operation.
0: Operation Cinnabon. Yeah, it's going to be a good one, yeah. Operation Parfait.
1: Yeah. yeah we'll
0: see, what that one's like Right, buddy. It's uh, always been always been a good time and uh, our next story, I believe, is Scorpius, isn't it?
1: Did the Simpsons adapt that for that episode with like Albert <laughs> Brooks with Scorpius, uh, Mr. Scorpio? I- I'm wondering. They might, they might have They might have. No deals, Mr. Bont. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, Thanks, everybody,
0: for listening. Uh, We'll get you back here on Bond by Numbers soon with our summer season startup coming shortly. Take care.
1: See you later.